scripture this morning. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul says, Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith, from which some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or correctly, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. And Father, we just want to humbly ask for the grace and help of your Holy Spirit as we continue now in our worship of you by opening the inspired and our authoritative word of God. Lord, we're standing here. Give us our marching orders. Write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts this morning through this portion of your word. Speak to us now, Lord, by your Spirit's ministry through the things you've already spoken in your written word here. We ask together expectantly in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. The word purpose is defined as the reason for which something is done. The reason for which something is done, or it also, in an expanded version, the reason for which something has been created, established, or for which something exists. And though there may be some exceptions, lest your mind be distracted, because mankind can get off track, and we do fail in our brokenness, generally speaking, with most well-intended people, rather than being over-suspicious too often, it is important to realize that there are actually legitimate and valuable purposes behind most things that are done, behind most things that are established, behind most things that are put into place, that there are valuable purposes for those things that exist. For example, civil laws, company policies, boundaries at times that are set up for things, protocol for maybe how something is done, or maybe warnings for what ought not to be done. And though there may not always be an understanding behind those things, and though we may not always know why or see or, or un, even understand or, for that matter, even agree with maybe why certain things are done or why protocols exist or whatever, the reality is there are often legitimate reasons why those things do exist. There is some fundamental reason or purpose connected to that. There's a reason why certain instructions are given by parents at times though our children may not understand, right? But there's a reason behind that. They may not see the reason. They may not be mature enough to understand the reason. They may not even agree with the reason, but there's still a purpose and a, a reason attached to that instruction or that request or why something's been set in place. Well, listen, that is especially true as it pertains to the things of God. 
to God's ways, to all of God's word, to spiritual life, to the church. God is an all-knowing and an all-wise and an all-loving father figure. And because of that, he truly understands how everything works absolutely perfectly. And so therefore, in his healthy and well-intended authority, with no perverse reason behind it, there are indeed purposes and reasons, purposeful reasons, why God does things the way that he does. Why God has established things to operate the way that they do. Why he has put certain things into existence. And a humble person recognizes that and also respects that. And embraces that in faith and trusts that God has a purpose. And that is one of the things I believe that was on the mind of the Holy Spirit as he directed Paul the Apostle to record the book of 1 Timothy, as well as particularly this first section that we're looking at. That Timothy would be fully aware that there are indeed important purposes behind things. That it's not just something that was put in existence or an instruction given with no reason attached to it, but that there is indeed a purpose and that those purposes should be understood and upheld properly by him and by the churches that he was overseeing and providing leadership to. Now, in our introductory look at 1 Timothy last time, we saw in chapter 3 there that the Holy Spirit gave to us a specific, clear indication of the purpose and reason behind why Paul wrote this particular letter. We saw that together last time in chapter 3 that the local church is God's household or God's spiritual family, and that God as a father figure wants his house to operate a certain way, certain household rules. He wants the house to function in a particular manner. And this letter in the New Testament is given to us so that we as God's children might understand how we are to function as God's family, for God's best, for our health spiritually, and that we would properly understand how to operate in God's house. And he said the reason behind that, remember, was because the church, God's household, he said, that we are the pillar and the ground of truth. That is, we are the foundation of, of how to properly determine what truth is in the world, in the society. That through God's presence, through God's you know, relationship with us, because we, as the institution of the church, have a relationship with God, because we have God's word, because we have God's spirit, we are the absolute best place on this earth, God says, to be the foundation for how to determine truth. What is true and what is false? What is right and what is error? And we're to be the foundational basis for determining truth within the world and also for upholding truth and educating people with truth. And this is so foundational and essential because the devil's main attack is lies and deception. And that is so much why the reason that God says the church must fulfill its role to remain a community of people that understand where truth is properly determined from God's standards of right and wrong and that we also be a sending station where truth is then dispatched and sent out into the world as we go out from gathering assembly to our jobs and in our families and in the society, that we would be the salt of the earth, preserving it to some degree from evil, just overrunning everything and everybody. 
and that we would be the light of the world to shed some light in a very dark place. Now, the location where Timothy was left by Paul to pastor there in Ephesus, not only does it seem he had responsibility of a congregation locally, but the other churches we know that had gone out of Ephesus into the region of Asia Minor, it seems that Timothy, in a sense, was providing oversight and direction to those other congregations and the leaders there. And in that region, false teachers were beginning to misguide people. And, and things were becoming polluted, and they were driving and drawing people into wrong and healthy directions. And sadly, Christians were developing an appetite to some degree among those congregations for junk food rather than spiritual nourishment. Paul talks about in his second letter to Timothy how there were some who no longer would even endure or put up with, he says, sound doctrine. That word sound doctrine means healthy or hygienic teaching. That is, they wouldn't even endure it anymore, but instead they wanted people who would kind of just scratch the itch and would say things and said that were stimulating or interesting or entertaining and that would make them feel okay about themselves. And Timothy's in a hard environment where strong leadership was essential, but it also was very, very difficult to kind of hold that line. And that's why we saw Paul give Timothy, if you look back in verse 3, that charge that he did at the beginning of the book, he says, as I urged you, verse 3, when I went into Macedonia and left you there, he says, remain in Ephesus. Why did he say that? Because guess what Timothy wanted to do? Leave. <laughs> Timothy was thinking, Paul, would you let me do this assignment for? Timothy seemed to have more of a timid character. Paul seemed to be more of an individual who had a little bit more of an iron will and thick skin, and he was a very strong leader. Timothy seemed to be a little bit more apprehensive and timid, and, and so Paul has to charge him, listen, Timothy, you stay put. Just as much as it's the call of the Spirit of God at times to go and to pioneer and to do something, Timothy, it's just as much the Holy Spirit at times to just remain where you are and to stay put and to hold the line and to keep doing faithfully what you're doing, particularly he told him, remain there in Ephesus. Notice that you may charge, that's a military term, that you may give order as a spiritual authority that they teach no other doctrine. Timothy, this is why your presence is important there. Now, Paul seems to go on to explain the reason behind this charge or order to Timothy to stay there and to hold the line with good, sound spiritual doctrine from the Word of God. He says, verse 5, now this is the purpose of that commandment. In other words, the command that he just gave to Timothy to remain where he was and to not let people teach other doctrine, but to hold the line tight to the word of God. He says, this is the purpose behind that commandment, is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, verse 5, and from sincere faith. So notice, Timothy, the reason I'm asking you to exercise strong leadership and to hold the line, he says there, I'm not just giving you this command strictly because it's a duty. I'm not asking you to stay there just because it's the right thing to do. He says there are purposeful intentions and reasons behind this command I'm giving to you to stay there and to hold the line and to do what it takes to keep people on track with the word of God. There was a purposeful reason why sound doctrine was essential. There was a purposeful reason why Timothy had a great responsibility 
to keep the emphasis upon the word of God. And here in verse 5, Paul begins to speak about the purpose and reason behind that. He says one of the reasons for remaining in the word of God, he says it matters, is the purpose of that, verse 5 he says, of the command to stay and to stay to God's word is love. In other words, what Paul was conveying, Timothy, the purpose, the aim, the goal to stay strong in your commitment to God's word among God's family is that it will develop and produce love among the people of God. That is a greater love for God himself and a greater love of God's love in their hearts to express towards one another. Greater love for God, greater love for people. And look, that aligns with the very heart of God himself. Remember, they asked Jesus on one occasion, they said to him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the entire law, the Old Testament scriptures? Some say there are over 600 plus commands in the Old Testament given. Which is the most important? Can you sum it up for us? Can you narrow it down? Give us some priority to focus our attention. Jesus said, this is what it is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And then he said, and I'll give you a second because it's kind of like the first. Then just love your neighbor as yourself. So he said, love God supremely and then love everyone around you that God puts in your path. And he says on these two things, if you can love God with everything within you and you can express love to people around you, he says, all the law, the prophets, everything kind of hinges on that. Everything else is sort of an expansion of that very thing. So Paul says, the purpose, Timothy, why I'm giving you this command to remain there and to keep to sound doctrine and keep the emphasis on the word of God is he says, that's essential to direct and stimulate love for God and love for people within the hearts of God's children. This was the primary reason Paul exhorted Timothy to lead strongly as it pertained to staying anchored in God's word in his pastoral ministry and to exercise oversight to make sure that he helped others to stay on track with that as well. Because here's the bottom line. God's word produces healthy and strong Christians. And God's word produces healthy and strong churches. And healthy and strong Christians and healthy and strong churches will be loving Christians and will be churches that are an atmosphere of love. Because the Bible that I read says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. The Holy Spirit does many wonderful things in the lives of God's people, but even the powerful expressions and the gifts of the Spirit, which we believe in and which we want to be open to, even there, he says, look, if you do all these things and the root of that is not love, it's a waste of time. It's completely mismotivated. It becomes carnal and fleshly. So God's highest ambition and his deepest desire is that as his spirit works in our hearts as a bunch of naturally very selfish people by nature, right? I'll speak for myself anyway, if you can't nod your head to that, is that his spirit is trying to produce love within us, love for God rather than love for ourselves and love for other people to a greater degree, exercising and expressing love like 1 Corinthians 13 describes rather than loving ourselves selfishly. And as God's word is working in the hearts and minds of his people through his word, 
purposely generating that love within our heart as his words going into us, the outgrowth of that fruit of love will blossom forth in some really beautiful things in our lives. And as Paul goes on in verse 5, he sort of touches on to give a few examples of what this love produces in our heart as God's word works in us. Look what he says. The purpose of my command was that there might be love, and then he says, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, verse 5, and from sincere faith. So he mentions sort of three symptomatic expressions of this love being developed in our heart through God's word working in our lives. The first thing he mentions is a pure heart, a pure heart. The heart in the Bible would be purged and cleansed from defilement within as the word of God was going into it. Now, whenever the Bible speaks of our heart, it's speaking of the not physical organ, but really just the, the epicenter of who we are as a human being. That is who we are in the deepest part of ourself, the place where our desires stem from within us, the part of us inwardly that directs who we are, the way that we're living, our actions and thoughts and our decisions. And our natural human heart, the Bible teaches, from birth is not good. We were born with a heart condition. We were born prone to heart attacks and a defiled heart and, and our heart being polluted in sinful, broken condition from birth. Jeremiah 17 declared it this way, that our heart is deceitful above all things and it's desperately wicked. That's God's estimation as a divine cardiologist as he evaluates our heart from birth. It's deceitful above all things and it is desperately wicked within every human heart naturally. But here's the glorious thing as the Spirit of God goes inside of us and he begins to work. And then as the Spirit-inspired, authoritative Word of God gets injected into our hearts like supernatural medicine deep within us, it starts producing wonderful effects. The powerful, life-changing influence of God's Word begins to purify my polluted heart. It begins to cleanse my defiled heart. It begins to rid my heart of infirmities and problems and sickness within. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of our human hearts. And God's word goes in and like a surgical apparatus, it begins to do precision surgery, and it begins to do things within my and your heart that help our hearts to be made more pure and cleansed. Jesus in John 17, when he was praying to the Father, said, Father, sanctify them by your truth. And then he said, your word is truth. When Jesus said sanctify them, it's literally the term that we pull from our English word where we get the term catharize. And the whole purpose of catheterization is typically to help the body to be able to release something that needs to get out of it. And that's the idea. The word of God goes into my heart and it catheterizes my heart. It gets junk out. It gets toxins out. And, and it releases and gets me free from things that are filthy and defiled in my own human heart as the powerful medicine of God's word is injected. Our selfishness is confronted as wrong and God's love is stimulated in our heart instead. 
as God's word goes into our heart, our heart is cleansed from darkness and perverse things and desires and ways that are just filthy. And the exposure of God's word continually purifies the human heart. And it helps us to love God more properly and to love other people. And, and, and it's that powerful water of the word of God that does this in our heart to where then we can come to this condition where Jesus said, remember, he said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And that's what we want, that the defilement of our heart gets dealt with as the word of God goes within and we begin to see God clearly. And so then we begin to love God more and we begin to love other people more properly. He says another thing it develops within is not only a pure heart, but it brings about as well a good conscience, he says there in verse five. And the conscience is like an internal moral compass that God's hardwired into every human being. And like an internal moral compass, our conscience kind of helps us detect when we're off track. And it also helps us to know when we're on track. And so it's this wonderful thing that God's hardwired within every human being that's born a conscience that it helps us kind of discern, am I on track or am I off track here? And it speaks to us both ways. It also functions, the conscience does, kind of like an internal moral judge. It evaluates what I'm doing. And as my conscience evaluates what I'm doing, like an internal moral judge, it then makes judgments and it tells me, hey, that's not appropriate. Or it says, okay, that's acceptable. And like a judge, it makes judgments and determinations for you and I to communicate to us inwardly what's right and what's wrong, when something is okay and when it's not okay, or when I should be guilty because I'm doing something that's not appropriate, and the conscience is wonderful to do that. And God's voice many times is speaking through the word of God to our conscience, communicating to our conscience inwardly to help us, to keep our conscience healthy, to keep our conscience in a good condition, to keep it doing its job properly. In John chapter 8, we specifically read there an occasion where it tells us that as they were throwing down the woman caught in the act of adultery and they were ready to stone her and they were becoming very hard on her and Jesus spoke to them, which of you is without sin? Why don't you cast the first stone? And it says, and being convicted in their consciences... They began to drop their rocks and walk away one by one. And again, as, as they heard the voice of God, their conscience was convicted, and then they responded properly. And so many times, God speaks to us by his spirit and through his word, and he convicts us of error in our conscience. And then through that conviction, he prompts us to confess and to apologize, to seek forgiveness and to turn away from error and to make changes in our lives. And in love... As it's operating in our heart, the word of God for other people and for God, it's the God's word communicating to our conscience that helps us then to course correct and says, you're not loving God if you're living like that, or you're not being very loving towards another person if you're doing that. And it's the healthy truth of God's word that goes in that exposes error and inspires correction. And then instead of having a guilty conscience, we have a good conscience. And we can live in all good conscience. And that's what God wants for us. A guilty conscience is miserable. You find me 95% of people 
who are struggling in certain ways, and so many times you can trace it back to a lot of times there's some degree of a, a guilty conscience. People get really odd and bizarre when they're weighed down under a guilty conscience. The things they do, coping mechanisms they turn to, because they're just trying to silence their guilty conscience. And God's saying, I want to help you get rid of a guilty conscience. I want you to be able to live in good conscience, to be able to put your head down and sleep at night. And it says, my word goes into your life and helps purify you and speaks to you and gives you a chance to autocorrect and do things. Paul speaks in Acts 24 of maintaining a conscience that is clear before God and before men. That's what God wants to give to us. And Paul's saying here, the word of God is a powerful ingredient to help with that. And so he says, Timothy, that's the purpose why I'm telling you, keep to the word of God. It will help do things to purify people's hearts, to give them a good conscience. And thirdly, he says, as that love and the word of God's working in the heart, it will also stimulate, he says, sincere faith, or your translation may say unhypocritical faith. And this is the idea here, being genuine as it pertains to living out the Christian faith, living in a genuine, humble walk with God, free from hypocrisy, just being real, being sincere spiritually in our Christian walk and Christian faith. You know, it's interesting, when we look at the word sincere, that English word sincere actually comes from a term that used to mean without wax. And it was specifically used in a purposeful way, sincere, where we get our English word sincere to be without wax. In that day, when sculptors would work, for example, on a, 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 a statue, and as they were chiseling away and doing things, and it was a whole work of art, and periodically, just like every human being in every work field, right, they would make a mistake. And maybe right when they're getting ready to hit the chisel, their hand slips from sweat, or their wife says, lunchtime! Oh, no! And all of a sudden, the nose is gone now. And you can't, once the nose is gone, when you're chiseling, you're taking things away, Right? or the ears falling off. And what some sculptors would do when they would make a mistake, instead of accepting their mistake and willingly taking proper responsibility for it, they learned how to mix together wax and crushed marble or crushed stone and then stuff it into the cracks to hide their mistake. Or even sometimes if there was a grievous error, they would even use that mixture as like a glue and they'd stick an ear back on the statue. And then they'd put it out in the marketplace. Well, that may work in Antarctica, but in the Middle East, in hot climates, as soon as the heat turned up and the sun turned up, what would happen is they would deceptively sell these statues that had wax mixed into them to hide the error and the mistake deceptively. It would be sold, then the person would bring it home, and as soon as it got hot or the sun hit that, the flaws were exposed and it was evident they had deceived people. All of a sudden, the ear starts dripping down the side of the neck, and you realize, boy, are you kidding me? They ripped me off. They hid this from me. They lied to me. They're a deceiver. And so as sculptors would build these statues to indicate their genuineness that nothing was hidden, they would put up signs that would say sincere, without wax. In other words, what they were conveying was an in integrity, what you see is what you get. This is the real thing. I'm assuring you I'm not a deceiver. I'm not living a double standard. I'm not living a double life. I'm not hiding my errors. If I do make errors, I own up to them. 
I get a whole new block of stone and I start all over again. I don't try and hide my error. I don't do things to try and deceive people. I'm genuine and not trying to give you an image outwardly that you're going to find out really isn't true of me and what I've done in my personal activity. And so this was the idea of not being a hypocrite, being genuine. And look, it is a very sad thing when people, and especially God's people, are guilty of spiritual hypocrisy and covering error, pretending in some way to be one thing and act like one thing is true when in reality they're hiding things and they're deceptively living a completely different life, maybe in private, a fractured life, doing things that are wrong. Look, read the Gospels. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, Jesus was very stern in regards to hypocrisy. He was compassionate with failures. But those who didn't want to address their failures and hide their failures and pretend that it was hypocrisy Jesus was very stern with because that was a conscious choice to be dishonest. It was a conscious choice to be deceptive. I used to always tell my kids when they were growing up, look, I expect you to fail. You're my child. You're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. All I'm asking is when you blow it, own it. Don't lie to me. I can deal with failures and mistakes. We all make mistakes. I've made plenty of mistakes. Your mother's made plenty of mistakes. We're, you're going to make mistakes. You're not a perfect person. But when you make a mistake, own it. Bring it to the, That's healthy. That's proper. Don't become a liar. Don't become a deceiver. That's a whole other level that begins to digress in a person in a very healthy way. Because, see, when you truly love someone, you don't deceive them. So we love God. We don't want to deceive we don't want to be dishonest. When we love people, we don't want to be dishonest and hypocritical. And look, the wonderful thing is this. The light of God's word has a wonderful way to shine the light on darkness. That's why he says, you, Timothy, you stay in the word because the light of the word of God will expose darkness. It will expose things in the lives of God's people to give them a chance to make things right before God, to redirect, to course correct, it gives us God's word power to hear God speak to us and to let God help us to walk in truth rather than in error, to help us walk in the light rather than continuing to walk in darkness so that we won't be putting on a spiritual show and pretending to be one thing when in reality something completely different is going on and we're being insincere. We don't want to pretend to be more spiritual than we are. And we don't want to be pretending, certainly, God forbid, ever, that we are serving the Lord when the truth of the matter is we are completely in private serving some completely sinful, dark, and unhealthy thing. You know, Paul's going to say in chapter 4, he's going to warn of these false teachers who were unhealthy. He said, who speak lies in hypocrisy because their conscience has become seared. The idea is burnt or damaged. Why? because they were repeatedly playing with fire and they had burnt their own conscience and their conscience became so guilty and so burnt that now they became completely insincere. They were still acting like they were walking in the faith, but they had become completely insincere. So look, Paul's saying, Timothy, look, my charge to tell you to stay there and stick with the word of God, there's a purpose behind that. And he says, the purpose behind that is it will bring spiritual maturity. It will produce love for God and love for people. And the word of God will produce things like keeping hearts pure and maintaining good consciences in the lives of God's people and helping people stay sincere and genuine 
in their Christian faith walk. Verse 6, he goes on to say there, from which some, sadly, he says, have strayed and have turned aside to idle talk. Now, seems here that Paul is speaking more of the spiritual leaders in the region rather than the Christians themselves when he talks about those who strayed. In other words, some pastors, some leaders, Timothy says, which is why I'm asking you to stay there and hold the line. He said some pastors, some leaders and churches, they've strayed off course from God's word and now they're engaged in meaningless conversations and they're occupied in worthless subjects. Sadly, some had ignored the crucial purpose behind why God gave his word. And Paul tells Timothy that in the second letter, 2 Timothy 3. He says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable, which means valuable, beneficial. And then he says, for doctrine, teaching, learning, for reproof, challenging error, for correction, once you're shown you're wrong, how to fix the problem. And then he says, for instruction in righteousness, how to live right with God and before people, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So notice, God had a purpose for giving his word. It was to do a lot of profitable, beneficial things. But some, Paul says, they've disregarded the reasons for God's word. They've strayed away from that. They've kind of set aside the existence and value of why God gave us his word as his people. And some pastors and church had turned away from that truth. And Paul says they were engaging now in other activities. He says they strayed away from the truth of God's word. And instead, they've turned aside, he says, verse 6, look at it, to idle talk. That is conversations, idle talk, conversations that occupy time. But though they occupy time, they're of no real help or substance. Some translations render that phrase, they spend their time in meaningless discussions. That is, they talk of things, and yet the things that are being talked about lack real value. There's no substance. There's no helpful value to it. And look, folks, the same patterns exist in our day of the church even as it did in that day in the early church where God's word has been set aside by some and substituted for other activities and for other things. Many other things, sadly, have become the substitute for an emphasis on the truth of God's word in order to best help the lives of God's people. And there are many things that fit that category. There are churches who are having conversations, idle talk, and they're having conversations about social issues rather than spiritual subjects and spiritual truth. And listen, I am not saying God does not care about social issues, but I'm telling you this, that we are the pillar and ground of spiritual moral truth. And when you're grounded with God's truth, you're going to live right in society. You're going to care about the right things, you're going to do the right things, and you're going to be salt and light in the society, and you're going to know how to respond right as a good citizen in the earth, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. But if you invert that, and you make people foremost citizens of earth before citizens of heaven, because of whatever reasons, you're not really helping people foremost in the house of God, you're just creating more angry people who are representatives of God who are going to run out and be angry in the world with everybody else who's angry in the world. 
And so it's such a damaging thing that we at times put this overemphasis on things, again, talking about things, but not of real value. Sadly, there are others as well who, uh, instead of, again, using the truth of God's word, they're, they're just entertaining people with interesting talks uh, and you know, well-prepared communication, whether it's a presentation like they're, in a sense, a motivational speaker or they're a life coach to just stir people up and get them excited. Look, both of which, whether it be that or the thing I just mentioned, they lack real spiritual substance. I don't know about you. I can say this from having sat on the other side of the pulpit too. If somebody just feeds me cotton candy, I may get stimulated, but I'm going to fall flat on my face by Monday at 3 p.m. I need some food to digest and to nourish if I'm going to make it from Sunday to Wednesday, let alone from Sunday to Sunday. <laughs> like You need to nourish my soul. And none of those things have real substantive value. And as Paul says, the tragedy is, Timothy, some have turned aside from the truth, and instead, they're, they've strayed from that. They're, they're involved in idle, meaningless things of no real substance. Verse 7, look what he says, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm or, or confidently emphasize. Paul identifies here in verse 7 that these unhealthy spiritual workers that Timothy was among there in that region many of whom had sadly then become even false teachers, he says here in verse 7, these individuals, they desire or want to be teachers. They want to be teachers. Paul says the problem is they don't have pure hearts and a good conscience and a sincere faith, and that's why they are not healthy. Look, let me just be very candid. There are some people who, if I could say this, to fulfill a psychological need within themselves want to be teachers. And there are some who desire to be teachers simply to scratch some psychological itch, but they have insincere motives. Maybe they just enjoy standing before others and having other people listen to them, having the opportunity to speak, the occasion to have a microphone, whatever it may be. There are some who just like talking about what they know. And they like telling people what they know, and, the, and they find a fulfillment in that and an enjoyment. Some people just like having an audience, having attention upon them. And maybe some people, I think at times, they just they, they want to be a teacher because they, they almost, in a sense, they like telling people what to do. They like being bossy and pointing out your problems. They kind of just like telling people what to do, and something within them kind of gets, in this way, kind of this psychological itch gets scratched within them. And then there are others to me in some ways, which may even be the worst, that just enjoy having people listen to them, and they kind of just crave to impress people with their incredible presentation abilities and to just wow people because they can speak on cadence or rhyme phrases or do alliteration A through Z. And, 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 and there's something within They are more concerned about the presentation than the content of the truth of God's word being fed to people's souls. Listen, I, I don't very, well, I'll tell you a funny story. I was taking my wife, because this applies, home from visiting our, our children uh, recently, and we were driving on the way home, and I, I said to her, hey, you, it's just you and I, you know, it's getting more like it. You want to go out to eat? And so we, we swung through a place we'd never been in before, but looked nice. 
with all that, I, I'm going to score, man. I'm going to do this. So, so we go in. We sit down. We check the Google thing first, the menu, the prices. You know, we do yeah, yeah. Go in there. We sit down. Then we sit down. We open the menu, and we see the price tag on these food items. And because my wife has become so much like me, she said, "This is, this is ridiculous. This is I mean, pay this much for a piece of meat. We we can go over there and get the same piece of meat." Oh, man, what a woman! Man, you are so hot right now, baby. We're getting dessert after this. I just. And so we did the typical, we have an emergency, and so we apologize, we have to leave. Now, thankfully, no one ever asks, we've only done this a few times, what the emergency is, because then I would have not been able to lie, and I would have had to say, your prices are too expensive. I'm having shock, a heart attack. It's an emergency. I've got to go to another restaurant. But the reality is sometimes these very expensive restaurants, right, few occasions where I've been in them, you ever notice that they make the plate so beautiful, and the portions are so small. But then you go to the, just a little country generic diner, and you get this big fat plate of lots of good food. It may not look super pretty in the atmosphere, but the reality is, man, there's a good meal right there. And see, this is so important. I, I don't think there's anything wrong. I don't think it's you know, any way, you know, healthy to be boring when you communicate to people. But at the end of the day, if I want entertainment, I got a television. I can watch Netflix video. I, I want to be nourished. I need to be fed. Wonderful if to some degree you can keep my attention in the process. But he's saying here they want to be teachers. But he says, sadly, they don't even, look what he says for a second, they don't even understand the very things they're saying or they're affirming. Look, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a teacher if your motive is right or you simply want to impart guidance and instruction. That's a healthy reason to be a teacher. Whether you're a school teacher or whether you're a Bible teacher, that you simply want to help people and you want to impart guidance and you want to instruct and sincerely take serious that role. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be a teacher. I'll tell you this, my own personal observation, I think a true teacher will often be identified by the fact that they will talk to an individual just as long as they'll stand before a crowd. And when somebody is a genuine teacher at heart, they don't need to stand before a group of people or a crowd of people. They will spend just as much time having a one-on-one conversation, talking to a person with a teachable heart and just trying to teach and instruct and to help them and provide guidance. And Paul said here, sadly, these unhealthy teachers, they want to be teachers of God's law, but he said they don't even really understand God's law themselves, though they're confidently affirming it. In other words, they were trying to be teachers of God's law, which at that time was predominantly the Old Testament scriptures. And Paul said the tragedy is they're putting together these presentations. They're even affirming things. That is, they're strongly speaking with great authority on different subjects. And Paul says the tragedy is they know the facts of the law. They know information. They can put together a really strong presentation and really affirm their points deeply. But Paul says the tragedy is they don't even have a genuine personal understanding of the law of God themselves as individuals. I sense what Paul's conveying there is the truth of God's word had not properly impacted and influenced their own heart as a person. They were just a presenter. 
They were just gathering information and presenting information, but God's word was not something they understood personally for themselves. They hadn't embraced it personally. They weren't living it out as an individual. They had a desire to teach, and their heart, in a sense, was completely disconnected from God's word, but their head could still put together good presentations. And look, folks, that is a complete disconnect and a tragedy and missing the whole purpose behind God's word, and more than that, the teaching of God's word. Because God wants us to know him in order to be able to introduce other people to him. You can't introduce somebody to God if you don't know God yourself. You can't help somebody live right if you're not living right yourself. And God's intention is that the person first understand the word of God for themselves and it be real in their life and they understand how to live it out and why it's important and what it means. That's the foundation then to share with others. I think of Ezra. It says of him in Ezra 7 that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. So you hear that? Ezra studied the word of God. He put into practice the word of God. He lived it out and understood it for himself as a person. Then he also then shared and taught others the same thing. You know, God have mercy upon us in the church these days. There are some people, tragically, I think, who are leading churches who lack proper understanding of the word of God and the ways of God. And some even are living in complete error, and we have to be wise and discerning, truly. We have to ask ourselves, when we're listening to anyone, the reality, wait a minute, is that person speaking from an overflow of understanding what it means to have a relationship with God and how to live according to God's word? Are they just speaking out of the overflow of their own personal experience and understanding of God's word and God's ways themselves? Or is that someone who's unhealthy, who's just hiding behind great presentation skills? And I hope it's always the former, that it's instead someone who's shepherding us as they're being shepherded by Jesus. Paul says, verse 8, but we know the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing, he says, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and profane, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and then Paul wants to make sure everybody's included, and if there's any other thing that's contrary to sound doctrine, healthy, hygienic doctrine. Now, in the days of the early church, as the New Testament was still being written and circulated, even as Paul's writing a letter here, the primary source of scripture till that time was the Old Testament. It was the law. And these unhealthy teachers of the law who didn't even understand it weren't handling it and teaching it properly and it was leading to unhealthy doctrinal ideas. And this is what Paul begins to say. He says, look, there's nothing wrong with the law of God itself, God's word. He says the law is good. That is, it's healthy. It has a beneficial purpose. It's God's word. But he says, as long as it's used lawfully, that is, in a proper way in accordance for its existence, keeping in line with why God established the law of God itself. Other translations render that when it's used correctly or the law is used properly. See, the bottom line is God's word is good, period, right? It's all inspired. 
It's all profitable. It's all useful because it's from God's spirit. But it's important that a proper spiritual understanding be held, the Bible's telling us here, regarding the Mosaic law, the Old Testament scriptures, the Ten Commandments, if you would. There was a definite reason that God gave the Old Testament law, and understanding that and allowing it to serve its proper purpose doctrinally is important that it did have a clear purpose. The primary purpose of the Old Testament law was not to arrogantly help people think they were right with God if they could check the boxes by keeping the Ten Commandments or following a set of religious rules or rituals. Now, certainly in the Old Testament law, God gives wonderful boundaries. He gives great moral counsel and spiritual insight, and we don't diminish that, which is wise to observe. It makes healthy lives and healthy groups of people. However, the primary purpose God gave the Old Testament law was to establish a holy, righteous standard that is the standard of God to show us that we're, guess what? Lawbreakers. And that we all rebel against God's standard. And we can't keep God's law. He says there in verse 8 that the law... Uh, was, excuse me, verse 9, knowing this, that the law was not made for the righteous person, that is a person who felt like they were living right before God in their self-righteousness. But the law was made instead, and then he goes on with his list. The law was made for people, he says, like lawbreakers and rebels to help see their true condition. The idea is to have a mirror. God's law is like a mirror to reflect our rebellious hearts as guilty sinners so that we become aware we're lawbreakers that we become aware that we are rebels against God's holy standards. Romans 3 says that the whole world becomes guilty before God by understanding the law, and it stops every mouth, and it proves to us that we are indeed sinful. And he says it's through the law of God that comes the knowledge of sin. See, it's like the speed limit sign. As you're driving home today, and you fly past it, and you realize as you're going 55, you're in a 35, you realize, oh, I just broke the law. The law of God reflects to us. This is God's standard, holiness, righteousness, and it reveals to people, you didn't keep that. You're guilty, man. You're a lawbreaker. You're, you're a sinful person before God. And as he gives this description here in verses 9 and 10, of all the ways which we rebel against God, he says, the lawless, the insubordinate, that is, we won't submit to God's authority, ungodly, without living for God, sinners missing the mark, unholy, profane, irreligious, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, that's intense, manslayers, taking the life of another, fornicators, a general term for any form of sexual immorality, sex before marriage, sex outside of the boundaries of marriage, adultery, homosexuality is implied in verse 10, sodomites, that was a term to speak of such, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and then he just says, if I missed anything, I mean it all. <laughs> and, and what he's doing here is trying to show this is what God's word, the law, shows to us that we're guilty. Because see, when the law of God exposes our guilt to us, it makes us realize we need help. We need a savior. We need someone to deliver us. And when God's word, the law of God, is properly used, the Old Testament law, it's not to create a deception of self-righteousness, but it's to show a person we don't measure up. Nobody does. 
that we're all guilty. We all deserve judgment. And guess what? When you realize you're guilty and you realize you deserve judgment as a sinful person, that makes you do what? Cry out for help. That's why Paul concludes with his transition verse the next week, according to the glorious gospel, verse 11, of the blessed God, which has been committed to my trust. He says, this is the purpose of the law, to make people sense their guilt and their sinfulness and that they're under judgment so that they could hear what we want to tell them. God's purpose was that they would hear about the glorious gospel, the glorious good news of the blessed God and what he did and that the fact that in his love he sent Jesus and let him live the sinless life and fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And then Jesus did what? He took all the punishment for lawbreakers. And he took all the pain and the suffering so that we could be spared. And look, to be able to realize that glorious good news that despite all the different things described in verse 9 and 10 there, no matter whether a person is just a disrespectful rebel, or if there's somebody who hates God, or if there's somebody who's just a chronic liar, or if there's someone who's guilty of sexual perversity or homosexual living, or if they've abused someone, or if they're a kidnapper, or God forbid they've killed their own relative, that no matter what they've done, Jesus can forgive them. And Jesus will spare them from punishment in hell and give them access to heaven. And that the glorious good news is no matter what we're guilty of, what Jesus did offers us a chance to be forgiven and set free and to have the assurance of going to heaven. And he says that's the purpose of God's heart, to bring people into right relationship with him and keep them in right relationship with him. And look, folks, this is why the purpose of the word of God is so important. Because as I read God's word every single day, do you know what it does for me? It restrains from within me from becoming what verse 9 and 10 describe as a human being. This is why we put such an emphasis upon the word of God because it helps restrain us from the life-destructive paths of becoming what verses 9 and 10 say that we can all be. You know, I have friends of mine Oh, well, you know, Sunday morning, you got to, you got to kind of, you know, shorten it up and tighten it up and just, you know, Wednesday night, those are the hungry people. You can really feed them because that's when the core group comes out. I tell my pastoral friends, that's stupid. Sunday morning is when I have the most access to Christians showing up to worship. Wednesday night, I get 25, 30% of the rest of the congregation. I'm feeding the meat when everybody shows up. Because that's the greatest opportunity to nourish our souls. Shall we stand together?